Hello, everybody, and welcome into episode number 98 of the Bible Reading Podcast. Today's big Bible question, how should God's people be led? We're also going to talk a little bit about meekness. What exactly is meekness? So happy Lord's Day to you, my friends. I trust that even if you are among the millions who are sheltering in place or locked in your home or whatever, that you know that your heart and your spirit are not shackled. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Let us rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Easter Sunday is next week, one week away, when the church celebrates the glorious resurrection of Jesus. It's looking like many hundreds of thousands of churches, including the one I pastor, will not be able to meet in person in sanctuaries. And on the surface, that's probably going to mute our together celebration of the greatest event in history, but let it not mute your proclamation. And please don't get tired of me saying this because I'm probably going to say it all week. Allow me to encourage you this year in 2020 in the midst of a global pandemic to amplify your proclamation of the resurrection of Jesus. Decorate your house, your sidewalks, your car. You know, like for homecoming, put the word on there. He is risen. Your car windows, your home windows, fly a banner, build a banner. He is risen. We uh, saw a shop the other day, I think it was a subway, and somebody had taken 8 by 10 uh, pieces of paper and made this massive sign out of it that said, open, that you even a blind person could see. And I asked my family as we drove by, uh, is that subway open? I can't tell. It was trying to be, you know, dad joke or whatever, but... Basically, all they did was they took pieces of paper and made them into this gigantic sign that everybody could see. Well, why why can't we do that? Even if we're not artistic, we can build letters out of paper and proclaim he is risen. Let that message be broadcast from your house, from your car, from wherever. Fly the banner. He is risen. Shout it to the mountaintops. Maybe our gatherings are going to be muted this year, but may our proclamation of the resurrection of Jesus be the loudest it has ever been in the history of the world. So, today's Bible passages are Leviticus chapter 8, Psalm chapter 9, Proverbs chapter 22, and 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Our question is all about ministry to people, and I know that not everybody that listens to this podcast is in ministry, So, and this is not just applicable to pastors. All Christians are somehow, some way, ministers, maybe teaching Sunday school or parenting kids or leading youth or teaching children or adults or being a part of a small group, being a deacon or an elder or worship leader, whatever. So the question is, how should Christians minister to each other? And let's read 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 because there's some phenomenal advice in there for ministry. Pay particular attention to verses 5 through 11. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our visit with you was not without result. On the contrary, after we had previously suffered and were treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, we were emboldened by our God to speak the gospel of God to you in spite of great opposition. For our exhortation didn't come from error or impurity or an intent to deceive Instead, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please people, but rather God, who examines our hearts. For we never used flattering speech, as you know, or had greedy motives. God is our witness, and we didn't seek glory from people, either from you or from others. 
Although we could have been a burden as Christ's apostles, instead we were gentle among you as a nurse nurtures her own children. We cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become dear to us. For you remember our labor and hardship, brothers and sisters, working night and day so that we would not burden any of you. We preached God's gospel to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how devoutly, righteously, and blamelessly we conducted ourselves with you believers. As you know, like a father with his own children, we encouraged, comforted, and implored each one of you to live worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is why we constantly thank God, because when you received the word of God that you heard from us, you welcomed it not as a human message, but as it truly is the word of God, which also works effectively in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, since you have also suffered the same things from people of your own country, just as they did from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and persecuted us. They displease God and are hostile to everyone by keeping us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. As a result, they are constantly filling up their sins to the limit and wrath has overtaken them at last. But as for us, brothers and sisters, after we were forced to leave you for a short time in person, not in heart, we greatly desired and made every effort to return and see you face to face. So we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, at time and again, but Satan hindered us. For who is our hope or joy or crown or boasting in the presence of the Lord at his coming? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. So there's some interesting wisdom there, right? We usually think of leaders as bold, brash, loud, confident, charismatic. But Paul here uses words like gentle, nurturing, comfort, care, and encourage. The overall image of a leader in the body of Christ here is a gentle, soft, meek leader. And that reminds me of a couple of really important descriptions of Jesus, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Matthew 21.5 says, Tell daughter Zion, see, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And then Matthew 12, verse 15 says, Jesus was aware of this and withdrew. Large crowds followed him and he healed them all. He warned them not to make him known so that what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not argue or shout, and no one will hear his voice in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed, and he will not put out a smoldering wick until he has led justice to victory. The nations will put their hope in his name. Jesus is Lord of all, and yet he didn't ride an ostentatious war horse covered in armor entering into Jerusalem, but like a donkey. He was so gentle that, speaking figuratively, he would not even break an already weakened piece of straw or blow out a candle that was already struggling to be, to, to be lit. Paul, likewise, ministering among the Thessalonians as a gentle nurse might take care of a child. He displayed those characteristics. In fact, no less than five times in the pastoral letters of First and Second Timothy and Titus, Paul, when he talks about 
the qualifications of pastors and leaders in the body of Christ, he required that they be gentle five times. In a world that looks for leaders with the characteristics of a lion, the word looks for those who follow the lion but behave like lambs. So let's talk a little bit about meekness. Sometimes the Bible uses the word gentleness. Sometimes the Bible uses the word meekness. And let's talk about the meekness of Jesus and the promise of Jesus that the meek will inherit the earth. To lead us in that talk, I'd like to tag in our old friend, Pastor Tim Keller from New York City. And the following excerpt on meekness is taken from a sermon he taught on the woman caught in adultery from John 7, 53 through 8, 11. And this is what Keller says. Today we're going to look at another one of the traits of character Jesus Christ reveals in himself that is given to us as well as characteristics of the heart we should be cultivating in ourselves. If you go to Paul's famous catalog in Galatians chapter 5, which is called the fruit of the Spirit, near the very end you get to a little word that, in most modern translations, is usually translated gentleness. I'm going to show you why, says Keller, even though it's a worse word, it's a little bit better word to go with the word meekness. Paul says one of the fruits of the Spirit is meekness. Jesus says, blessed are the meek. Why? Why didn't he say, blessed are the meek, for they shall be comforted? When you think of meek people, maybe you think of poor, distressed, anxious, meek, little milk toast kind of people, and you think, oh yes, Jesus is going to say, Blessed are those poor old meek people, for they shall be comforted. But no, he doesn't say that. He says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Then Jesus says in his most famous of all invitations at the end of Matthew 11, Come unto me, all you who are weak and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. When you think of meek people, you probably think of troubled people people with low self-esteem. You think of people who are depressed, maybe, or anxious, and who are always wringing their hands or their Bibles. Maybe you think of people who are filled with turmoil in their hearts. And Jesus says, you will never, ever get rest until you learn from me how to be weak. There'll be no rest in your life, says Keller, until you get meekness. There'll be no rest in your life until you come and learn meekness and humility from Jesus. So let's do it. Obviously, we have two problems. Not only do we not have meekness in our lives, we obviously don't even understand it because the way Jesus talks about meekness is not the way it fits in our minds. We don't even have a good definition of it. So let's go and let's see a place where Jesus Christ's own humility, what he called his meekness and lowliness of heart, is exhibited. And then in the message, Keller begins to talk about John 7, 53 through 8, 11, the pericope adultere, where the woman is caught in adultery. We talked about that on a few episodes ago. Uh, fascinating passage. The, the Pharisees bring a woman who was caught in the act of adultery, and they say to Jesus, you know, this, the law of Moses says this woman should be stoned. What do you think we should do? And so Jesus gets down on the ground and he starts doodling. Let's pick up Keller's message when he's talking about that. Keller says, what is Jesus doodling? Everybody wants to know. All sorts of people have come up with all sorts of ideas, but the Bible doesn't tell us. Therefore, there's really only one thing the writer is trying to get across here, if anything at all. That is, Jesus is unflappable. He's poised. He's calm. He's fearless. One of the things you have to recognize 
is this word Jesus says, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. And when Paul talks about meekness, it's the same word that Jesus uses in every other place. And and unless we understand the word, we'll never begin to get the hang of what Jesus means when he talks about meekness. Now, the Greek word here, says Keller, is praus. It has different forms. Do you know what it means? It comes from the word for an animal, a powerful, wild animal that is now submissive and receptive to the rider, a tamed wild animal. If my wife Kathy and I ever feel like we're just crying for joy, you know, sometimes we would say, hey, would you really like to have some joyful tears? Yeah, let's do that. So we put on a video of a movie called The Black Stallion, and we watch young Kelly Reno, the child in the movie, jump on the back of this enormous, incredible, powerful beauty of horse of a horse that's called The Black. And he rides that horse through the surf. Unless you look at something like that, unless you see this enormous power that voluntarily has submitted, this huge, huge power submitting to this little kid, I mean, let's face it, if they're going to have a battle between the horse and the boy, who's going to win? This enormous beauty and this enormous power is now submissive and responsive to the desires of the little boy, of the rider. Until you get a grip on that, you don't understand meekness. Jesus did not give up his power. He did not give up his greatness. He's a moral beauty. He says, I can command angels right now to come down and rescue me. He still has his power. He still has his glory. He's not exercising it. Why not? Because he has put it all under He is submitting everything he is, and he's receptive to us, and even, as we're going to see, to the people that talk to him. He could just wipe out his critics, but he doesn't. He tries to teach them. He tries to open their eyes. He tries to wake them up. Now, what's the point? You are not humble unless you're gentle, but you're also not humble unless you're absolutely fearless. Fearlessness is a sign of humility, says Keller. What an unfortunate thing that meekness and weakness rhyme in English. Maybe the devil did that. I don't know. It could have been. In our minds, they go together now. And in the theology of Christ, though, they are utter opposites. Meekness and weakness are opposites. In biblical understanding, the meekest would be the strongest. Why? I'll tell you why. Humility. Meekness is not thinking less of yourself. Jesus knows who he is, and he's being gentle. He doesn't say, oh dear, who the heck am I? Jesus never talks like that. This is the big thing that's so scary about Jesus, says Keller. He walks on through and he says, I am the Lord of heaven and earth. I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning before Abraham was, I am. He makes these incredible claims. I'm the judge of all the earth. I can forgive sins. But he never ever knocks himself down and says, oh, I'm nothing. He never says that. Get this, says Keller. He acts like nothing, but he knows he's not. See, that's the exact opposite of the world's understanding of humility. In fact, that's the opposite of most of us. Most of us feel inferior and act superior to compensate for it. Jesus Christ knew he was superior, and yet he acts the inferior. He puts all of his power and glory under the interest of other people. Real humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Real humility is being free from needing to focus on yourself. It means freedom from self-consciousness, says Keller. So what do we learn here? We learn that Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, has modeled for us meekness and humility. 
And we see Paul in our passage of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 modeling for us that same kind of gentleness, nurturing, comfort, encouragement that he based his ministry on. So my friends, what does that say to us? It says we should be the same way. We should model the meekness of Jesus and the humility of Jesus and the comfort that Paul gave in the nurturing type of attitude. Of course, I'm not saying that we'd be milk toasts or weenies or weak or cowards or anything like that. But as Keller put it, I'm saying that we walk in the kind of meekness that Jesus did with this incredible gentleness that draws people and points them his way. It's not the world's way of leadership, but it is Jesus's way of leadership. And it's far more beautiful and powerful than anything I've seen in the world. Well, let's read some more scripture today, beginning with Leviticus chapter 8, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, take Aaron, his sons with him, the garments, the anointing oil, the bull of the sin offering, the two rams, and the basket of unleavened bread, and assembled the whole community at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the community assembled at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Moses said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded to be done. Then Moses presented Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. He put the tunic on Aaron, wrapped the sash around him, clothed him with a robe, and put the ephod on him. He put the woven band of the ephod around him and fastened it to him. Then he put the breastpiece on him and placed the Urim and Thummim into the breastpiece. He also put the turban on his head and placed the gold medallion, the holy diadem, on the front of the turban as the Lord had commanded Moses. Then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and everything in it to consecrate them. He sprinkled some of the oil on the altar seven times, anointing the altar with all of its utensils and the basin with its stand to consecrate them. He poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed and consecrated him. Then Moses presented Aaron's sons, clothed them with tunics, wrapped sashes around them, and fastened headbands on them, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Then he brought the bull near for the sin offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their heads hands on the head of the bull for the sin offering. Then Moses slaughtered it, slaughtered it, took the blood, and applied it with his finger to the horns of the altar on all sides, purifying the altar. He poured out the blood at the base of the altar and consecrated it so the atonement can be made on it. Moses took all the fat that was on the entrails, the fatty lobe of the liver, and the two kidneys with their fat, and he burned them on the altar. He burned the bull with its hide, flesh, and waste outside the camp as the Lord had commanded Moses. Then he presented the ram for the burnt offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram. Moses slaughtered it and splattered the blood on all sides of the altar. Moses cut the ram into pieces and burned the head, the pieces, and the fat. But he washed the entrails and legs with water. He then burned the entire ram on the altar. It was a burnt offering for a pleasing aroma, a fire offering to the Lord, as he had commanded Moses. Next he presented the second ram, the ram of ordination, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram. Moses slaughtered it, took some of its blood, and put it on Aaron's right earlobe on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. Moses also presented Aaron's sons and put some of the blood on their right earlobes, on the thumbs of their right hands, and on the big toes of their right feet. Then Moses splattered the blood on all sides of the altar. He took the fat, the fat tail, all the fat that was on the entrails, the fatty lobe of the liver, and the two kidneys with their fat, as well as the right thigh. From the basket of unleavened bread that was before the Lord, he took one cake of unleavened bread, 
one cake of bread made with oil in one wafer, and he placed them on the fat portions in the right thigh. He put all these in the hands of Aaron and his sons and presented them before the Lord as a presentation offering. Then Moses took them from their hands and burned them on the altar with the burnt offering. This was an ordination offering for a pleasing aroma, a fire offering to the Lord. He also took the breast and presented it before the Lord as a presentation offering. It was Moses' portion of the ordination ram, as the Lord had commanded him. Then Moses took some of the anointing oil and some of the blood that was on the altar and sprinkled them on Aaron in his garments, as well as on his sons in their garments. In this way, he consecrated Aaron in his garments, as well as his sons in their garments. Moses said to Aaron and his sons, Boil the meat at the entrance to the tent of meeting and eat it there with the bread that is in the basket for the ordination offering as I commanded. Aaron and his sons are to eat it. Burn up what remains of the meat and bread. Do not go outside the entrance to the tent of meeting for seven days until the time your days of ordination are completed because it will take seven days to ordain you. The Lord commanded what has been done today in order to make atonement for you. You must remain at the entrance to the tent of meeting day and night for seven days and keep the Lord's charge so that you will not die, for this is what I was commanded. So Aaron and his sons did everything the Lord had commanded through Moses. Psalm chapter 9 verse 1, I will thank the Lord with all my heart. I will declare all your wondrous works. I will rejoice and boast about you. I will sing about your name, Most High. When my enemies retreat, they stumble and perish before you, for you have upheld my just cause. You are seated on your throne as a righteous judge. You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have erased their name forever and ever. The enemy has come to eternal ruin. You have uprooted the cities, and the very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for judgment, and he judges the world with righteousness. He executes judgments on the nations with fairness. The Lord is a refuge for the persecuted, a refuge in times of trouble. Those who know your name... Trust in you, because you have not abandoned those who seek you, Lord. Sing to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Proclaim his deeds among the nations. For the one who seeks an accounting for bloodshed remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the oppressed. Be gracious to me, Lord. Consider my affliction at the hands of those who hate me. Lift me up from the gates of death so that I may declare all your praises." I will rejoice in your salvation within the gates of daughter Zion. The nations have fallen into the pit they made. Their foot is caught in the net they have concealed. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed justice, snaring the wicked by the work of their hands. The wicked will return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy will not always be forgotten. The hope of the oppressed will not perish forever. Rise up, Lord. Do not let mere humans prevail. Let the nations be judged in your presence. Put terror in them, Lord. Let the nations know they are only humans. Selah. Hmm. Poignant passage for this hour, huh? Finally, Proverbs chapter 23, verse 1. When you sit down with a ruler, consider carefully what is before you and put a knife to your throat if you have a big appetite. Don't desire his choice food, for that food is deceptive. Don't wear yourself out to get rich because you know better. Stop. As soon as your eyes fly to it, it disappears, for it makes wings for itself and flies like an eagle to the sky. Don't eat a stingy person's bread and don't desire his choice food, for it's like someone calculating inwardly. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. 
you will vomit the little you've eaten and waste your pleasant words. Don't speak to a fool, for he will despise the inside of your words, and don't move an ancient boundary marker, and don't encroach on the fields of the fatherless, for their Redeemer is strong, and he will champion their cause against you. Apply yourself to discipline and listen to words of knowledge. Don't withhold discipline from a youth. If you punish him with a rod, he will not die. Punish him with a rod and you will rescue his life from Sheol. My son, if your heart is wise, my heart will indeed rejoice. My innermost being will celebrate. When your lips say what is right, don't let your heart envy sinners. Instead, always fear the Lord. For then you will have a future and your hope will not be dashed. Listen, my son, and be wise. Keep your mind on the right course. Don't associate with those who drink too much wine or with those who gorge themselves on meat. For the drunkard and the glutton will become poor and grogginess will clothe them in rags. Listen to your father who gave you life and don't despise your mother when she is old. Buy and do not sell truth, instruction, wisdom, and understanding. The father of a righteous son will rejoice greatly, and the one who fathers a wise son will delight in him. Let your father and mother have joy, and let her who gave birth to you rejoice. My son, give me your heart, and let your eyes observe my ways. For a prostitute is a deep pit, and a wayward woman is a narrow well. Indeed, she sets an ambush like a robber, and increases the number of unfaithful people. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has conflicts? Who has complaints? Who has wounds for no reason? Who has red eyes? Those who linger over wine. Those who go looking for mixed wine. Don't gaze at wine because it is red, because it gleams in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a snake and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things and you will say absurd things. You'll be like someone sleeping out at sea or lying down on the top of a ship's mast. They struck me, but I feel no pain. They beat me, but I didn't know it. When will I wake up? I'll look for another drink. Well, that's a sobering ending to our reading for the day, my friends. Uh, Pun intended, I suppose. May the Lord use his word to build you up and to edify you, to comfort you, to exhort you and encourage you. May this be a blessed Lord's day to you. May he give you safety and healing in Jesus' name. Good day to you and Godspeed.